Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. Good to be here today. Good to have you. What a great delight to sit down front today. I usually sit in the back, but to sit down front today and just hear the celebration of your voices in one great choir. Somehow the music never comes across like it does at Christmas time. Just the carols that we love and sing with great delight and gratitude to God. I was delighted this week to read a devotional from Chuck Swindoll, who agrees with me that the favorite Christmas verse is 2 Corinthians 9.15 that Pastor Mark referred to, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. It's not in the Gospels, and it's not really a Christmas passage, but it certainly speaks of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And to delight this morning in the anticipation series to come to the subject of worship. Interestingly enough, for about 100 years, the concept of worship was absent from the evangelical church. In the 19th century, about the middle of the 19th century, when Darwinism began to invade the minds of scientists as the answer for the origin of all things, a theologian by the name of Walter Rauschenbusch from Germany began to put forth a school of thought called higher criticism that basically undermined the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. And those who followed his school of thought came to the place where they denied that the Bible was inspired, they denied the virgin birth, They denied that Jesus Christ was God. They denied the necessity of the cross, believing that while Jesus wasn't God, he was a good man. And by following his example and doing good works for the good of society, one could earn his or her way to heaven. We call that liberal theology, and out of that, the social gospel that basically permeated all of the big and influential Protestant denominations for the next 100 years. In reaction to that, people that we would call today evangelicals in defense against liberal theology reacted with a man-centered philosophy of ministry turning attention away from worship, the focus came to be on evangelism. That because the gospel of grace was being obscured by this new fangled social gospel. And in the effort to defend against the social gospel, all of the focus of the church, the influential leaders, the writings, and so on, defended the gospel of grace and purported that that was the only thing we should be concerned about. In fact, a pastor in the area where I attended seminary 
told his congregation, evangelism is the only thing we're worried about. Winning souls to Christ is the only thing that matters. Glorifying God is something we'll do in heaven, so don't worry about that now. And in putting forth a man-centered philosophy of ministry with the focus on evangelism, a God-centered philosophy of ministry that focused on worship was basically pushed aside. Carl Finney, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, the great evangelists of that particular era, held full sway over the church, its emphasis and its focus, and worship was a forgotten entity. Approximately the middle of the 20th century, some 100 years later, there were people who began to introduce the importance of worship. But evangelism certainly is necessary. But evangelism that really works to the glory of God is the evangelistic concern that flows out of a worshiping heart. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, Now all has been considered. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, worship, obey his commands. This is the whole duty of man. So if we worship God, one of the commands is to make disciples. And that's the order with which we ought to pursue the whole effort of evangelism. But the problem is that that overemphasis on a man-centered philosophy of ministry left a worship that was pretty much empty and void, simply going through the motions if people paid any attention to it all. One of the spokesmen during that recovery period, if you will, was a man named A.W. Tozer. He pastored churches in the middle of the 20th century, and he began to be consumed with the fact that worship was forgotten. In fact, Three of his essays are collected in this little booklet, Worship the Missing Jewel of the Evangelical Church. He wrote another essay, Whatever Happened to Worship? He wrote another essay that emphasized what I mentioned to you a while ago, work and worship, that our service or our work or evangelistic efforts or whatever need to flow out of a heart of worship. He addressed this question, or these questions, in the booklet. Why did Christ come? Why was he conceived? Why was he born? Why was he crucified? Why did he rise again? Why is he now at the right hand of the Father? The answer to all these questions is, in order that he might make worshipers out of rebels. In order that he might restore us again, to the place of worship we knew when we were first created. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were vested with a God-centered mindset. They anticipated his visits in the evening. We know that because after the fall, anticipating his visit, they they decided it was necessary to hide from him. Instead of welcoming him as they had done who knows how many nights before. 
they hid from him. And they became a man-centered couple. Satan had told them, you could be like God. Eve said, that sounds good. She gave the fruit to Adam. He said, that sounds good to me. And from then on, man has been plagued by a self-centered or a man-centered interpretation of life. And worship is pretty much absent unless we worship ourselves or the things that please us. Jesus himself said regarding this subject, the hour is coming and now is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father, hear this, the Father is seeking such to worship him. That's what the Father's looking for. In one of his essays, A.W. Tozer said, we go at the ministry of evangelism as though we are recruiting workers for a project. For God seeks worshipers. God is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Notice, five times Jesus emphasizes the priority of worship as being that which God seeks and that which man ought to prioritize. So as we move into our study this morning, let's keep in mind that God expects that one of our priorities, in fact, I believe the leading priority of our response to him is to worship him. And all of our words have led up to that. Certainly our worship involves the idea of rejoicing. Certainly, It involves our praise, our adoration, and certainly then we come to the idea of worship this morning as the all-inclusive or the summary idea of the emphases of our anticipation week, including that worship, excuse me, is the rational or the wise response of the creature to the creator. And that worship can take many forms. Rejoicing, praising, adoring, giving, witnessing, praying, giving thanks. Worship takes many forms. It's not just a few songs from the hymnal or from the screen that we sing together on Sunday morning. Worship is the rational or the wise response of the creature to the creator. I believe that's set forth in the story of the wise men. John and Deline presented us with the nuggets that we want to consider this morning. I'm not going to reread the scripture, but just to call attention to the fact the wise men came to Jerusalem and asked, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. That's the purpose of their journey, to worship him. Herod, though he had ulterior motives, also said, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Moving on, the star led them to where Jesus was, and when they saw the child with Mary his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. The father seeks worshippers. The son attracts worshipers. The Spirit enables 
worshipers. The proper response of the creature to the creator. I would like us to look this morning at some of the ways that it becomes evident that God is seeking worshipers. First of all, he seeks worshipers by revealing himself in what we call natural revelation. Natural revelation. In other words, creation. We live in one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And you who are privileged to live in the Western Cape should thank God every day that you are privileged to live here. You may see photos of other places and say, oh, that is beautiful, that is lush. No place on the planet is nicer than, more beautiful than, more attractive than the Western Cape, which by everything that surrounds us in God's creation testifies to who he is. I tell people in the States, if you could live in the Western Cape, why would you choose to live anyplace else on earth? Can I get an amen? There we go. There we go. But think of the sea, the consistency of the tides that witness to God's eternality. The mountains, Table Mountain and the Hottentot Mountains, that even are a biblical illustration of his majesty his power, even his eternity. If you saw the moon rise last night, I hope you didn't worship the moon, but I hope that the moon in the sky witnessed to you of a mighty God. If you watch the sunsets over Falls Bay, how can you help but be in awe of this majestic, mighty God? He is seeking worshipers, and he appeals to us through his creation, or what we call natural revelation. But sadly, there are those who reject that witness. The United States, France, Russia, China, and so on, spend billions, if not trillions of dollars every year, sending out space probes to Mars and all of this stuff, trying to sort out the origin and the age of the universe and all of that. What a bunch of nonsense. You can go on the internet for free and read Genesis and discover how it all happened. And it doesn't cost you anything, except your internet fees, of course. But men reject the truth. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a key idea. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, the oceans, the mountains, his divine nature, the sun, moon, stars, and so on, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There is no person on the planet from the Garden of Eden to today that has an excuse 
to stand before God and say, I never had a chance to know you. That's a lie. Because God has revealed himself. But man refuses to come to the truth. He suppresses the truth. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. A man-centered idea rather than a God-centered understanding. Suppress the truth, exchange the truth, believe the lie. Worship the creature rather than the creator who is God-blessed forever. Amen. But what God wants as he reveals himself in natural revelation is to bring about the attention of people who will respect the truth instead of rejecting it to see all that God has done and respond in awe. Listen to what David says in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David didn't live in South Africa, but he got the message. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? See, this is a God-centered understanding of natural revelation. Not to worship the creature rather than the creator, but to stand in awe of the creator and have a righteous understanding that the creature is pretty small in light of the eyes or in light of who God is. The wise men got that. Listen to what the Bible says. I'm not going to read the whole scripture. John read that for us earlier. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. God revealed himself to the wise men in natural revelation. And their response was to try to make their way to God in order that they might worship him. This is a righteous response. This shows a respect for the natural revelation. That's why it's there. Yes, to stun us with its beauty, but to understand that behind the beauty is a God who made it all. My Hebrew prophet seminary's testimony me, was the fact that he served in the Navy in the United States. And coming back from being deployed overseas, he was stopping over in Hawaii. Hawaii is a beautiful spot. And he was walking along the Waikiki Beach one night And he saw the waves, he saw the stars and the moon and all of that. It was a beautiful testimony in natural revelation to the existence of God. Dr. Northrup said, when I look at all of that, I said, there has to be a God behind all of this. This is not accidental. This is intentional. And I want to know the one who made it all. That is a righteous response. That's showing respect 
for the natural revelation rather than rejecting it, and that is God's intent. But God goes even further. He reveals himself in special revelation, that is, the scripture. David says in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows its handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice, that is, the witness of creation, is not heard. But as you move on down to the psalm, it's the law of the Lord that converts the soul. It's the law of the Lord that enlightens the heart. Creation, or the natural revelation, says there is a God who is there and he is worthy of our worship, but it doesn't tell us how to make our way to God. We need special revelation for that, the Bible. But if you've been around people very much and had any discussions about the Bible, there are people who reject the Bible. Some of them just naturally reject it because they don't believe that it's true, they don't believe that it has any value, even its moral principles have been called into question. And in this day of pluralism, the Bible is reduced to just one among many choices. You can have any truth source you want. They're all valid. They all describe and prescribe a way to God. And if you just follow the dictates of your true source, you'll be okay. Not so. If there's any greater lie that Satan has perpetrated besides you can be like God, it's that all truth sources are equal. The Quran is not equal to the Bible. The billions of writings of the Hindu religion are not equal to Scripture. The Old Testament without the New Testament is not sufficient. It is essential that we understand that the Bible incident in its entirety is another step that God has taken to help man come into an understanding of who God is. What we witness in creation says God is there. What we witness in special revelation, he can be known. But Paul says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, or foolishness, as the King James Version says. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If you look at 2 Peter chapter 3, you discover that the natural response of man is to mock God. Where is the promise of his coming? God has forgotten you. God doesn't love you. All of the inventions of man to deny the authority and the truth of Scripture. But not so the wise men. The Bible says they respected the scriptural or the special revelation. When Herod and the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem, Micah 5 2. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The star, natural revelation, led the wise men to Jerusalem. The special revelation gave the wise men information about now how they could find the one that they were seeking to worship. And thus they were led to where Jesus was to witness the incarnational 
revelation. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. But the uniquely begotten Son of God has come, I believe the, it's the ESV that says, to make him known. The you know what I mean? He says to explain him. The term that is used there, translated into, into, transliterated into our language, to exegete him. And that was Jesus came to reveal even further what God was like. So creation tells us that God is. Special revelation says God can be known. Incarnational revelation says how can he be known? But it's interesting that people will reject that as well. He came unto his own. His own people did not receive him. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. I was just reading in my quiet time this morning in John 13, where the people, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, determined not only were they going to kill Christ, they were going to kill Lazarus. Because because of Lazarus' resurrection or being raised from the dead in John chapter 11, people were gravitating to this miracle worker called Jesus. And they said, if this keeps up, everybody's going to go follow Jesus. Well, let's kill them both. That is not a recognition of Jesus or who he is. That's a rejection of the God-man who came as the incarnate God to reveal to mankind what God is like. The writer of Hebrews says, in times past, bits and pieces of revelation came through the prophets. But now in these latter days, God has spoken to us through his Son. There is no greater witness or testimony as to who God is. And he is the way the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except by him. And so it is God's anticipation and desire that men will respect his son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The wise men did that. When they came into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him. You see the process? For those who respond to natural revelation, God brings them into contact with special revelation that will introduce them to the incarnational revelation by which they can become his children. Because it is God's desire that we worship him. He is seeking worshipers. So notice the extent to which he has gone to make worshipers out of rebels. Paul writes to his young child, Timothy, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, special revelation which are able to make you wise for salvation in, or through faith, excuse me, in Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Your translation may say the word of God. Literally, it is the word of Christ. And the interesting thing is that the word word here is not the familiar term logos. In the beginning was the logos, Christ. For the word of God, the logos, Hebrews 4.12, is quick and powerful and sharp of many two-edged sword. This word means the specific saying. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the specific sayings of Christ, that he died for our sins, was buried, and raised again. You see, it is God's intent that the natural revelation will bring about a response to investigate special revelation, which will bring about a contact with the incarnational revelation to believe the gospel and be saved. There's not a person on the planet that is forgotten. There's not a person on the planet with any excuse. God has made himself known as he appeals to members of the human race to respond in faith to the gospel of Christ and be transformed from a rebel to a worshiper, from an alien or a stranger to a son, from an enemy to a child of God. That brings us then to the fourth dimension, that once one has responded to the incarnational revelation, it is God's desire that our worship would emanate from what I call relational revelation. That means the discovery of the believer who has been transformed by grace, who has responded to the gospel, now engages in the process of spiritual growth that he or she might worship God acceptably, Romans 4.24, in spirit and in truth. But there are those even among believers who reject the truth. They don't want to give up what they hold dear. They don't want to have to pay too high a price to be a child of God. Max Riddle has an essay in which he says people act as though Christianity is, I just want $3 worth of God, please. Something that will fit in my little bag. A life insurance policy or a fire insurance policy to make sure that I'm on my way to heaven. But don't let that interfere with who I am or what I want to do now. Paul refers to them as carnal Christians. We're not denying their salvation. But they are carnal. Paul says, I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you're still of the flesh. They can't mature because they're carnal. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I shared with Pastor Mark that a week or ten days ago, I received word from my sister that a gentleman from our hometown had passed away. His name is Bill. 
I didn't know Bill well. He was about six years older than I. He was the age of my mother's youngest brother. But we lived in a small town. His mama lived across the street from my mama. I knew his parents. His mother worked in the hot lunch program at school. His sister was just a year older than I. So I, I knew him, though we were not tight. Okay, we were not close friends. And as she talked to me about Bill having died, I remembered the night in an even evangelistic series of meetings. I remember the night when Bill went forward. He was a college student. And he went forward in that meeting appearing to be an absolutely broken man. He was sobbing as he went forward, being so convicted of his sin and having heard the gospel so plainly preached. And I believe that that night, Bill became a child of God. After graduating from the state college in our hometown, he went off to Chicago Seminary, which is where you go if you want to jettison your faith. That seminary has never, ever been even anything like an evangelical school. It is part of the Walter Rauschenbusch legacy. And Bill went off there, off to go to school there. He went off the rails there. And he spent the next 40 plus years in ministry. But his obituary said, Bill, though spending years in ministry, never told people that they needed to be saved. He just told them that they had been graced by God from the day they were born. Why do I share that with you? I'm not the judge of Bill's salvation, but for all of the external appearances, Bill was genuinely saved. But he went off to a place that denied his, denied his Savior, that undermined his confidence in God's Word, and he lived out his life of ministry pursuing the social gospel and justice for the marginalized. I'm not discounting what he did. What hurts my heart is that it was divorced from the proclamation of the gospel of grace. It is possible to be a child of God and reject relational revelation. Do not cultivate the intimacy that God wants his children, his worshipers, to have with him and instead to buy into worldly philosophies, the vain deceptions about which Paul warns us. But what about those who respect, who respect the idea, who cultivate the privilege of being children of God and having in them the Holy Spirit and having in their hands the Word of God by which they can enter into a better understanding of who God is and grow in faith and in the knowledge of Christ through what I have called a relational revelation. The wise men set the example. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts 
Well, first of all, they worshipped him. They didn't come to buy anything. They worshipped him. And then they presented him their gifts, expressions of sacrifice, worship, selflessness. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They responded to revelation and obeyed God. When the eleven disciples went out to Galilee with Jesus, on the day he went back to heaven, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, when they saw him, what did they do? Tell me. They worshipped him. Before they ever heard, go and make disciples from all of the nations, they worshipped him. Their response and obedience to the Great Commission wasn't out of a threat. It wasn't out of any other man-centered idea. He didn't say, go out and make disciples because all those people are going to hell if you don't tell them. He gave them their instructions after having received their worship. An evidence of their relational revelation. Their time spent with Jesus. They understood who he was. They understood why he came. They recognized he now was going to depart, and the rest of the ministry was up to them. Jesus himself says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love and manifest myself to him. A response to the relational idea of knowing God. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The wise men's respect for natural revelation brought them into contact with this special revelation. The star led them to Jerusalem, where they heard the special revelation. The wise men's respect for special revelation brought them into contact with incarnational revelation. Based on the teaching of the Word of God, they pursued their efforts to seek out Jesus Christ and Responding to the incarnational revelation brought them to that relational understanding of who Jesus is. And the response of their heart was to worship him. In fulfillment of their effort, in ultimate response to the appearance of the star, they worshiped the Savior. Work of Christ as Tozer and redemption for all its mysteries has a simple and understandable end. It is to restore men to the position from which they fell and bring them around again to be admirers and lovers of the triune God. God saves men to make them worshipers. That's why Jesus came. To make it possible for rebels to be changed. By the gospel of grace, 
that he who came to Bethlehem, died on the cross for our sins, was buried and raised again, and, though departing from his disciples, promised he would come again. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'm not going to abandon you. I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. However, you can't get there any other way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Worship is the rational or wise response of the creature to the creator. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.